0: Broadband, we need it for work and for school, for our health and our economy. What's being done to bring broadband internet access within reach of every American? Let's talk about it now on Rural Broadband Today. Here's your host, Stephen Smith. Thanks for tuning in to another episode. I've really been looking forward to this conversation with FCC Chairman Ajit Pai, Uh, Chairman Pai was first appointed to the FCC in 2012 by then-President Barack Obama. In 2017, President Donald Trump designated Pai as chairman of the FCC. We talk a lot about rural broadband in this interview, of course, but we touch on other topics in this wide-ranging conversation, topics that the chairman is particularly passionate about. And, of course, the uh, impact of the coronavirus pandemic is uh, something we touch on as well and how that's impacted his staff, and uh, his uh, home as well. So without further ado, let's listen to my conversation with FCC Chairman Ajit Pai. And thank you so much for joining us on Rural Broadband today. Welcome, welcome to the podcast, Chairman Pai.
1: Hey, great to be with you. Thanks for having me on.
0: Absolutely. So uh, we're going to we, we we were talking before the, the tape rolls there that you uh you are like so many Americans with uh, the uh, coronavirus situation. You're sitting at home and uh, having to do some remote remote work and juggle some uh, assignments with uh, sco- school work with the, with the children. Tell us what's uh, going on in the pie household.
1: Yeah, it's been uh, you know, managed chaos for a few months. Uh, we have been working from home and the kids have been studying at home for about six months now including the past couple of weeks with a new school year. And uh, it's been a challenge. You have know, a tough job, uh, no matter when it is. And then on top of that, uh, you're trying to you know, keep sure, make sure the kids are focused on school and uh, not fighting with each other or turning the video off and running off outside. It's, it's been uh, a little bit of a scramble. But uh, you know, thank goodness for some of this technology, at least, because I honestly don't know how we could have done any of this be 10, 20 years ago. So. I guess that's the silver lining is the stuff that we've been working on, and I know you are too, it helps us get through times like this.
0: Absolutely. How has the challenge been for uh, your staff and you know, getting the work of the FCC done under these circumstances?
1: Yeah, I was I was pretty nervous, I will say, in uh, mid-March, uh, about March 12th or so, I remember sitting in my office, uh, realizing that the whole country was about to shift to telework, and that included our office, and so we had to make sure that our IT team was able to meet the challenge, that we communicated clearly with all the SEC staff, and uh, I've got to say, they really stepped up to the plate. In fact, over the last six months, we've been just as productive, in some ways more productive, than we were when we were in headquarters. And uh, you know, part of that, I think, is uh, the fact that we do have a pretty good IT system that keeps all of us together. And then a part of that is also that we really have a staff that cares about these issues and, in particular, the pandemic-related issues that we've dealt with is you know, setting up a telehealth program and uh, granting waivers to allow companies to gain emergency access to spectrum to help people in hearted areas. Uh, you know, our FCC staff, they're Americans first, and they really care about their fellow citizen. And so they really put in the extra time and effort uh, despite the circumstances. Uh, so you know, while I certainly would prefer to see them in the hallways and you know, grab a coffee with them and pat them on the back for a job well done, I will say that uh, it's been an incredible experience of uh, being a coworker of theirs. So they deserve all the credit for the good stuff we've done over the last half year and throughout my tenure.
0: Well, I was very excited to uh, get you on the the show today, but you are you are such a visible. Uh, FCC Chairman, you are you are on so many interviews and webinars, and you know I'm I'm seeing you all over. And you know sometimes, a uh, public officials in, in your position uh, or similar position may not be uh, as out there. You are even um, you know very active on Twitter, and you share a lot of good information and a lot of fun information. It's a fun account to follow. Um, what what drives that? What 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 makes you want to be so accessible?
1: that 's a good question, uh, so I think part of it is just who I am. I tend to be uh, extroverted, optimistic uh, you know happy <laughs> most of the time and yeah i 've always been that way you know, growing up in rural Kansas, you just uh, uh, you know that, that's just the way everybody was, and so um, I guess that's you're just part of my DNA and then part of it is also making sure that people know what the FCC is. Uh, What work we do and who we are and I specifically remember back in 2012 when I was a commissioner before I got this job uh, Thinking okay, how do we communicate what we're doing to the American people? I was actually the first commissioner on Twitter back in 2012 and I remember some of my colleagues at the time saying you're crazy What a waste of time this is Hmm. but now all of them are on it including much of the SEC staff even and I think part of the reason is you're able to communicate with so many other people who would never otherwise be able to come to the FCC's headquarters. Certainly, we never hire a lawyer or lobbyist to follow what we're doing. And it just helps people to understand our work. And for some of these issues that really touch a nerve, for example, establishing 988 as a suicide prevention and mental health hotline, or uh, some of the other work we've done on rural broadband deployment, I think there are a lot of people out there who are really eager to learn about us. But they just would never otherwise know. Um, and then, as for me personally, I will say that part of it is just making sure that people know I am responsive. That I, you know, I'm not some ivory tower bureaucrat sitting there issuing dictates from up on high. I, I'm also a person who is you know cares about what they're uh, concerned about and tries to get feedback. And some of the feedback I've gotten over Twitter has actually enabled us to take action on you know, things like no access codes for dialing 911 for multiple uh, line telephone systems. I mean, that mm. came from a tweet I got back in December 2013. So yeah, I oh. know social media is a mixed bag, but for me, it's been a general plus.
0: Uh, well, I know as part of your stated uh, philosophy, uh, good communication knows no partisan affiliation. I really like that. And in uh, yeah. really, when you look at your um, tenure at the FCC, you, know, you, you were uh, appointed originally by a, uh, a Democrat president and, uh, and then moved to the, uh, ch- the chairmanship by a Republican president. I think that says a lot about the way that you approach uh, policy and your philosophy.
1: I certainly hope so. I mean, uh, you know, I've yet to hear anybody say when I travel around the country Uh, yeah, you know, don't focus on rural broadband deployment. That's a Republican or Democratic issue. Or thanks for increasing the amount of spectrum by 5x for Wi-Fi. That's a Republican or Democratic issue. I mean, communications really has, as I said in uh, my bio, no partisan affiliation. I think that's part of the problem nowadays is that it's such a poisonous political environment because folks think everything has to be political. And yeah, I long for those days, uh, if there ever were such days, I thought there were, but uh, you know, where we could have civil discourse and just leave the politics out of it, figure out what's best for the country, and you know that's what I've tried to do in this job to the best of my ability.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, the um, the focus, of course, going into 2020, I think I think we all thought, you know, we're starting a new decade, and this is uh, the time to focus on new and exciting things, not having any idea of what we were headed toward. And you have um, uh, one of the things that, uh, that the commission has done—the the Keep Americans Connected pledge—came uh, out pretty early. And what? How would you characterize the response that you have seen from the uh, from the rural broadband providers? I mean, those folks are in a—you um, know, their their margins are lower, the density of their service areas are um, sometimes ridiculously low. And how would you characterize their response?
1: I cannot say enough about how rural broadband providers stepped up at a moment of national need and really uh, delivered value for the American people. And, you know, I think people might forget now, it's been six months or so, but, you know, back in mid-March, we had, what, 200 million people, something like that, uh, moving to a work-from-home environment. there's a big question, how on earth are we going to, sustain all of this increased traffic over the internet. And part of it was uh, the Keep Americans Connected Pledge. Uh, In mid-March, I initiated that pledge, asked uh, broadband and telephone providers of all sizes uh, to pledge not to cut off service for consumers, either individual consumers or small businesses, if they couldn't pay a bill because of disruptions caused by the pandemic, uh, that they'd waive any late charges, and that they'd open up the Wi-Fi hotspots. And we ultimately extended that pledge until the end of June, and almost 800 companies t- took it, a huge number of rural broadband providers. And as you said, I mean, I can't say enough about these folks. These are folks who you know, they struggle to keep the lights on in some cases. They're serving a population that's sparse, with tends to have lower incomes. Uh, the person who does the network install might also be the customer service person. I mean, it's not like they have a ton of personnel But nonetheless, they signed this pledge and they delivered. That's part of the reason why I've gone to Congress repeatedly and said, uh, you know, these people, these people, these rural broadband providers deserve credit, but they also deserve some assistance if we want to make sure that they're able to continue doing some of these things uh, so long as the pandemic goes on. So my my hats off to the folks who, you know, really went above and beyond and uh, helped their fellow man in a time of need. I know it sounds cheesy to say, but. To me, it really exemplifies what makes America so great. Is that at the end of the day, we care about our fellow citizens, you know, more than we care about ourselves in some cases. Mm, that's
0: very true. Um, ha- have you gotten a lot of feedback in your office from uh, the rural providers in terms of the impact that that's had on them, or any concerns that they might have of the, you know, the long-lasting uh, impact of, you know, the financial impact of keeping people connected? Yeah.
1: Yeah, I have heard uh, anecdotally and a a bit of aggregate data, too, that uh, for some of the carriers that took the pledge, uh, there has been some bad debt accumulating, and it might seem to someone in Washington, like not that much, $50,000 or $100,000, but if you're a small carrier, uh, that's a lot of bad debt to have on the books. And so uh, in addition to that, obviously, their customer base is continuing to be impacted. So if you're, for example, in a part of the country where you know, say ten percent or twenty percent of your customer base has lost their jobs. Mm. Uh, you, what, what does the future look like for you in terms of keeping them as a customer, uh, you, getting revenue uh, on the books? So that, that's a challenge, and I think that's one of the things that we're going to have to think about going forward. Is there's been a massive dislocation, and that's going to have trickle down effects to you know, broadband providers, you know, power company, all kinds of other folks who uh, you know, also are in this uh, are involved by this. So. It's tough. I, I don't envy the task of those folks at rural broadband companies that uh, have to figure out a way to make P&L work, but they're making it work so far, and I'm committed to helping them in any way I can.
0: Well, I, I've never been to Parsons, Kansas, but I think growing up there, <laughs> you can tell us a little about it. Uh, that has uh, given you a, a perspective, and you, you understand what these folks are dealing with, don't you?
1: Oh, definitely. Uh, yeah, Parsons, uh, for those uh, listeners who don't know, Tiny town about when I was growing up, there was 11,514 people, about three hours south of Kansas City, two hours southeast of Wichita, two hours northeast of Tulsa, you know, pretty far out there. Mm. Uh, and uh, for me, at least, I didn't even realize it was such a small town because there are many smaller towns around there uh, where my father would go. He was a physician, and so sometimes he would drive to some of these other towns where they, you know, otherwise there was no doctor there at all uh, for them to see. And uh, yeah, I still remember growing up just you know being friends uh, with – uh, one of the boys who was in my class, his dad was a farmer. Uh, you know, we lived on a dirt road outside of town, so we actually didn't even live in the town itself. So, you know, I very much remember what that was like. I remember getting the first McDonald's and how excited people were in mm-hmm. 1982, I think it was. Um, but I think you know, by and large, the just the style of life there—that you know, people are good people, and uh, you know, they didn't keep their doors locked, and people would wave at you when you passed them on the road. I mean, that it was that kind of place, and. Even though my sister and I chafed at it when we were teenagers, like, oh, gosh, why are we in this small town? Looking back on it, it was one of the greatest life lessons I've ever had because you just learn to look someone in the eye and work with them collaboratively and be friends with them because, you know, you were it was a pretty small town. You knew everybody and everyone knew you and you had no choice but to, you know, really see the best in people. And I don't know, that's been – even now I've lived in the big city for many, many years – I'd like to think I still retain that small town sense of, uh, you know, camaraderie, and you know, we're all in it together uh, that I had back then.
0: Right. It, it makes a difference in the upbringing, that's for sure.
1: Oh my gosh! And that's one of the things I wish kids, uh, you know, my own kids, who we were of course growing up in a big city, I wish they could see too. there's something uh, not to get too off too much of a tangent, but also just being outdoors. Mm-hmm. I mean, my sister and I, we had a ten acre pasture uh, behind our house. And my sister and I would just spend hours out there exploring, or you know, my, my mom would drop us off at this uh, big kind of forested park where we'd play for hours. And there's something about just being outside that helps kids, I think, adjust. And nowadays, when everyone's indoors all the time and playing games and on the phone, you know, I, I don't know, there's something, I can't put my finger on it exactly what it is, but there's something that's lost, I think, with people being indoors all the time, especially kids.
0: Well, we, we lose a connection to the natural world around us, I think, and
1: that, uh, oh, that, yeah. that could
0: keep us grounded otherwise.
1: Yeah. One of my favorite things to do with my kids, uh, since the pandemic is when we go on these walks around the neighborhood and, you know, we'll find cicadas or worms or beetles. And, you know, at first my kids were horrified and I just pick this stuff up and show them and now they love it. <laughs> they actually are picking stuff up on their own, investigating, creating scrapbooks and, uh, it's just great. I keep telling them there's so much beauty in nature out there that you're never focused on. If you're focused on your phone, or your iPad or your TV or whatever, that, you know, we've got to keep in mind that we're just a very, very small part of this world. There's a lot of other stuff out there that we should learn about Mm. and appreciate Mm,
0: That's, that's, that's well said. Absolutely right. Well, we have seen over the last, um, well, I mean, you could go all the way back to the, um, American, uh, Recovery and Reinvestment Act and and start charting there, some attention, um, great attention on uh, rural broadband. And then certainly it seems like just the last few years, we have seen a lot of momentum, uh, a lot of states getting into uh, setting up some grant programs and of course, some uh, additional resources coming from the federal government. Then when uh, the pandemic hit, uh, it seems like that pushed everything to the forefront and just really uh, trained that spotlight on we have a real issue here and, uh, and, and we need to solve that. In your time at the FCC and in the communications industry in general, you, uh, have, have you ever seen this much intent on solving this challenge that we have?
1: I certainly don't think so. From my first full day as chairman, uh, I made clear that this was going to be my top priority because I've seen in too many places uh, that there are folks on the wrong side of that digital divide. And, you know, I I know it might not be uh, Republican orthodoxy to say it, but I do think the government has a very critical role to play. And when it comes to the FCC, that role involves primarily funding uh, to make sure that we can help rural broadband providers find a business case for building these high quality networks that otherwise wouldn't exist. And so, you know, we've really reformed the universal service fund in some fundamental ways to make sure that we target those unserved areas, uh, provide uh, the subsidies that uh, companies need to build these networks and provide the accountability to make sure that uh, the companies do what they say they're going to do. And we're starting to see all the fruits of that come together. You know, the Connect mega Fund phase two is a great example, $1.5 billion through a reverse auction and, I've now had the chance to see everywhere from Athede, Wyoming, to Ada, Oklahoma, how some small companies that you know, most people have never heard of, you'll never see them on the front page of the New York Times or whatever, but they're doing the hard work with this FCC funding uh, to build broadband. And so you know, we have even a bigger initiative coming up, as I'm sure you know, the Rural Digital Opportunity Fund, which is uh, $20 billion, $16 billion in the first phase. And it, to me, that's a, such a critical initiative, because I think the pandemic has only underscored the fact that broadband is it's critical if you're going to be a participant in daily life, and especially in rural areas. I know some folks think, "Oh, why do rural folks really need broadband? Is it that important?" And they said, "Well, you know, look if you're if you're eating, the chances are that the food on your table came from a rural area. And for things like precision agriculture, you need to have broadband. Uh, you know, and just as in rural areas, they need telehealth and remote learning and all the rest. For things like precision ag, you've got to have a digital connection. So. Uh, it, it's a passion for me, and will be so long as I draw breath at the agency.
0: Well, you mentioned the uh, the Ardoff uh, Rural Digital Opportunity Fund, and, and let's get, let's get into that. We are recording this uh, interview toward the end of September, and uh, t- give us kind of a timeline of of what's going to be unfolding over the next few weeks.
1: Yeah, so uh, we, this is a, as I said, a twenty billion dollar initiative to get broadband to unserved parts of the country and then later to unserved parts so uh, the art of 20 billion total phase one which starts on october 29th is a reverse auction of 16 billion dollars up to 16 billion dollars. and there we will target unserved areas areas that we know are not covered with 25.3 megabit per second broadband Uh, we have uh, put a thumb on the scale in favor of faster speeds and lower latency so if you're coming up uh, if you're bidding for example Uh, with a gigabit uh, speed uh, bid, uh, you will get preference over uh, somebody who's bidding at the 25 megabit per second level. Uh, Similarly, it's a reverse auction. So we open up to competition from uh, any company using any technology so long as they are demonstrated to be able to meet the service thresholds. And uh, so that is gonna happen on October 29th. Uh, There's a lot of paperwork that our staff is processing right now in terms of applications uh, that have been submitted to compete in that auction. And it will hopefully iron out any kinks. Uh, I know the staff is hard at work working with some of the broadband providers on those. Um, And then once uh, phase one is over, any money that's left over, plus the remaining 4 billion will go into phase two. And phase two will focus on partially served areas, areas where one part of a census block might be covered, but another won't be. And uh, so it's a a really exciting initiative. And this is our biggest step yet to close the digital divide. It could cover up to 10.4 million Americans and those are folks who have waited long enough, in my view. We need to get them connected, and we should get them connected as soon as we can. Hmm.
0: I noticed in the, uh, the listing of the applicants, there were, I don't know, maybe six pages of uh, applicants with a complete application, but there were like 17 pages of incomplete applications. How, how does that work, and what, what is the strategy behind so many companies submitting an incomplete application?
1: Yeah, in some cases, uh, it might be uh, something as small as, hey, you know, you left out your zip code on the application. Uh, You know, we need you to correct that. In some cases, it might be something more fundamental. Uh, You know, you're you're a company that uses this kind of technology, but you're uh, proposing to bid using a completely different technology. What's going on there? And so what happens with those so-called incomplete applications is that our staff will go back and work with the person or the entity that submitted it and just try to figure out what's going on. And in the overwhelming majority of cases, we do that. Uh, So the number of incomplete applications this time around, is uh, the percentage is very comparable to what we got with the Connect America Fund Phase 2. So there, too, a lot of those incomplete applications ended up being resolved, and a lot of those folks participated in the auction. So I'm confident here, too, that... uh, Yeah, if you're a rural broadband provider and the FCC has told you your application is incomplete, don't fret. uh, We're willing and able to work with you, uh, just as we've worked with others. And we we want our ultimate goal is to make sure that we get all that stuff squared away so you can participate in the auction. You know, we win when more people are competing in that auction to serve. Okay.
0: Our company works with uh, a lot of rural broadband providers who are um, really all of them going the fiber to the home route because of the reliability and, uh, you know, future proof. And it just, you know, it's something that's going to be there for uh, decades to come. But there are a lot of technologies besides uh, fiber to the home. And I wonder if you have a feel yet for how diverse uh, those technology, uh, among those technologies that that we're going to see in that auction. I mean, we're reading things about you know, Google balloons and Tesla satellites and uh, fixed wireless and just really a mixed bag of technology. How do you think that's going to come down?
1: It's going to be really interesting. Uh, My position has always been one of technological neutrality, that uh, so long as you are providing the service at the thresholds that you're bidding at, the SEC shouldn't exclude anyone or favor anyone. Uh, and so, you know, although, as I said, we put a thumb on the scale in favor of faster speeds and lower latency, if whoever's able to do that with a better mousetrap, that's that's fine with us. So certainly we want to encourage a lot of fiber providers to compete. Uh, fiber to the home, of course, is a uh, in many ways the gold standard and I've had a chance to see that for myself out in the field that it, uh, as you said, is high capacity, resilient and uh, future proof in many ways. Uh, but there are other companies using different technologies too that want to compete. Uh, fixed wireless companies that you mentioned, uh, some of the non- geostationary satellite orbit constellations uh, are uh, claim that they have a technology that allows them to compete with relatively higher speeds and lower latency than satellite had in the past. Uh, we're also seeing some electric utilities get into this space, too. Of course, uh, you know, they have uh, some of the utility poles and other infrastructure in place. And in recent years, they've been bidding in some of our auctions to be able to serve some of the harder-to-serve nooks and crannies of the country. Uh, so it's going to be fascinating to see how it works. But my goal at the end of the day is, you know, who, as I said, whoever has the better mousetrap and can deliver value the cheapest for the American people at our service you know, let's let's let them have a fair chance to compete. Yeah. So, um, That's going to be fascinating to see, and uh, you know, I don't have any predictions as to how it comes out, except that I do believe that the consumer will ultimately win uh, when the best providers for a particular area are the ones who are selected. Oh, and I should have mentioned, by the way, the other thing for the fiber folks that you're talking uh, about—they should know that when the budget clears for a certain area, uh, the highest speed bid, essentially the gigabit bid, a gigabit fiber bid in your case, uh, in their case, would be the winner. So, uh, you know, if that budget is cleared. Uh, then that's a good thing for the fiber providers out there because they've got a pretty strong chance of of winning in those areas.
0: Oh, that's a great point. You mentioned the nooks and crannies. I imagine that uh, a lot of these areas, when when you're talking about the the unserved area, I know that you are a a big proponent of of competition and and the free market. And so many of these people uh, who are unserved right now are probably unserved because there's not one company that can get there, much less right. you know, competition. Uh, so you're 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 probably going to see a lot of those areas when you think that come in with just one bidder, just because they're so remote and hard to make money out of.
1: Yeah, I, I would think so. I mean, there as uh, your question implies, they're unserved for a reason. And you know, I, I've seen parts of the country with less than one square mile per person. Mm. I mean, I, I challenge anyone a Nobel Prize winning economists or Top-ranked CEOs to figure out how to build a business case around that, you know, and uh, yeah, that's why I think the FCC's RDOF and some of the other initiatives like that are so so important. Uh, those are still Americans; we still want them to be connected and have just as much of a chance to succeed as anyone else. And you know, it's, it's, this is what it's going to take because you know things like the RDOF to make it happen.
0: Mm, absolutely. In the uh, in the latest book from. Uh, Peter Diamandis and Stephen Kotler, it's called The Future is Faster Than You Think. They're discussing the convergence of uh, technologies and the impact that that's going to have on the future in a lot of different sectors. But when they're talking about broadband and uh, connectivity in general, they predict in this book, they make the statement that before the midpoint of the next decade, anyone who wants to be connected will be connected. And part of me was like, well, you guys haven't seen some of rural America that I've seen. But uh, do you, uh, how optimistic are you that, you know, in the next five to 10 years, we're going to significantly shrink uh, this uh, this digital divide?
1: I, I think I'm pretty optimistic. Uh, if the RDoF executes as we hope it will and expect it will, and that's up to 10 million people who get high quality broadband with a with a higher speed that's favored, a future-proof speed. So, you know, that's that's a big chunk out of the digital divide. There's some 18 to 20 million Americans or so that are unconnected right now. And, you know, we want to make sure that we do everything we can to, to do that. And I do think that there are other technologies out there that you know, maybe five years from now uh, will become even more refined. You know, we talked about the satellite stuff and yeah, satellite, my gosh, I mean, the strides they've taken since I was, First got into this field, and mm-hmm. it's just been incredible. So, if there's a way to, you know, solve that problem using satellite, great. The same thing with fixed wireless too. I and mean, we put out a lot of the spectrum, especially in the six gigahertz band that uh, fixed wireless companies can use. And if there's a particularly challenging area where fiber deployment is just never going to happen, it's you know, mountainous or whatever. Um, or yeah, you know, I've been to parts of Alaska that don't even have roads into some of these towns. It's just quicksand, essentially. Mm. Uh, maybe fixed wireless has a a part to play there, too, and some of the fixed wireless companies are able now to use these 160 or even 320 megahertz wide channels in the six gigahertz band to deliver gigabit uh, speeds, so um, yeah, that's that might take off in a half a decade, too, and so, you know, I, I really share the optimism uh, that those authors had. I haven't read the book, but I certainly hope that their vision comes true. Um, I, like you, yeah, <laughs> there's some pretty rural off the beaten path parts of this country, so, it's going to take a lot of work uh, by folks like you out there, but yeah, you know, who knows? If Americans could do it uh, with electrification in the '30s and '40s, then you know, well, why can't we do it with broadband in the 21st century?
0: That's exactly right. We have proven time and again when the collective will is there, we can accomplish great things as Americans.
1: Absolutely, and you know, it, 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 this is again one of those things I think everybody agrees on. Um, you know, whether you're an Alabama or an Auburn fan, I think you would agree that the other team. Should be connected with broadband, and uh, you know, if, if we can, you know, if the iron bowl doesn't stand in the way of people agreeing on the digital divide, then I don't think anything should.
0: Well, all I can say to that is roll tide. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, I'm sorry uh,
1: for all you war eagle listeners out there. But. <laughs> uh,
0: well, the um, of course, this show is focused on uh, rural broadband, but um, the FCC. There's so many things that that, that fall under your. Uh, your area of focus. And um, one, one thing in particular, I noticed uh, recently that, that you had signed a, a letter with NARIC's president, uh, Brandon Presley, uh, on the, the inmate calling uh, issue. There was some um, uh, news, I think just this week, just this past week on the three digit, uh, the suicide hotline, any of these other issues that you would like to touch on and, t- and talk about the things that are, Particularly interested, interesting to you, even though they're a bit overshadowed by everything that's happening right now.
1: Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I really have enjoyed working uh, on—it's just been a personal passion of mine—has been nine eight eight suicide prevention. Is a critical issue. Suicide rates in the U.S. are now reaching levels that we haven't seen since World War II, Uh, and especially with the pandemic, what we've seen is a spike in the need for people seeking and getting mental health uh, services they need, and so. Um, one of the things that Congress urged us to do a couple of years ago was to think about, is there a better way to connect people who need help with the people who can use provide it? And right now, there's a National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, which is 1-800-273-TALK or 273-8255. You can imagine if you're you know struggling late at night and you've got thoughts of suicide, it's hard to remember that long phone number. So what we did last year was to propose 988 as the number, a three-digit number uh, that anybody could call to get connected to with that suicide prevention lifeline directly. And I think it has a lot of advantages. 988 isn't really used all that much right now. Uh, There are 87 area codes where it's a prefix, but we think we can deal with that. Additionally, it has an echo of 911, so people would tend to remember it over time. And additionally, we got tons of support from mental health advocates, from the Veterans Affairs Department, uh, you name it. Everyone came out of the woodwork to uh, support it. So we finally adopted it earlier this summer. And uh, the implementation date is July of 2022 because it will take time in these rural areas where there are those prefixes that use 98 for them to migrate off of it. Uh, but I think once it takes effect, uh, it's going to be transformative and I, I'm, I know the politicians always say that and I hate it, hearing it when it's just a political slogan, but this really will save lives. And there are people out there dying today that we hope will be able to get the help they need. And I, I'm really proud of the work that we've done on this. It's been a, a slog trying to find out the perfect number or the right number. And I think we found it here. So but that's just one of the many initiatives. You mentioned inmate calling too, uh, you know, fo- folks who are incarcerated in jails or prisons uh, sometimes have to pay exorbitant rates. And one of the things that we've done is to spearhead an initiative with our counterparts at the state regulatory level, uh, Neighborhood as it's called, a National Association of Regulatory Utility Commissioners, uh, to talk about the intrastate rates that might be too high. The FCC doesn't have authority there, but uh, we do think that state governments do. And so working with our state regulatory counterparts, we hope to attack that issue. And as you said, this is an issue that easily falls through the cracks. You know, Nobody really uh, you know thinks about it all the time, but it's an important issue nonetheless. And you know, the last one I'll tackle is contraband cell phones. These are contraband cell phones that get make their way into prisons. And this is an issue that I flagged a couple of years ago when I was a commissioner, and it's a real public safety menace. Uh, violent inmates who get these phones uh, can target prosecutors, witnesses, threaten family members of witnesses. Uh, they run scams from inside prisons and uh, I've been to now several correctional facilities, voluntarily, I would add, uh, mm-hmm. from Oklahoma to Massachusetts to Georgia and uh, you know and many more. And they've told me that contraband cell phones in prison are much more valuable than cigarettes, than drugs, or even money. And mm. uh, so that's one of the things that we've been working on is you know, trying to get the wireless industry, correctional officials, and others uh, to take action on this issue. Hmm.
0: That is a problem I did not know existed.
1: Oh, it's, I mean, there are stories out there that would, you know, curlier blood. So I remember meeting a guy, he was a, he was a correctional official in South Carolina. And uh, one night he heard an intruder in his house. The intruder shot him six times. And it turns out that this guy was too good at his job. His job was to get rid of contraband that was found at, I believe, his Lee correctional facility in South Carolina. And so one of the inmates got sick of it, uh, called up put out a hit on a contraband cell phone. And then, you know, this happened. And luckily, this man survived. I ended up meeting him, and he came up to Washington, D.C. when we introduced this initiative a few years ago. But And he said, and I completely agree 100%, this is a major public safety issue that, you know, if you think about what it means for prosecutors and witnesses and you know, just any random person, it's a serious threat. So you know, we're taking it seriously, and I hope that others do too. Mm. Well,
0: Chairman, this is certainly a a, a season uh, of reflection for a lot of people, and as we are moving quickly toward the uh, the holiday season and you know the the, the end of twenty twenty a twenty twenty that we did not anticipate. Uh, looking at your tenure at the FCC and thinking about all the challenges that you've tackled, and in particular with rural broadband and and the the progress that you've seen and the progress that you hope uh, to accomplish in your continued work there. What would you hope your legacy would be when you're sitting, when you're sitting on your front porch with the grandkids and the rocking chair, and you're looking back on your career, what what do you hope that legacy to look like?
1: Uh, That's a good question. Uh, It's funny because we're always sprinting so fast in these jobs that we never take the chance to stop and just kind of think about where we are and where we're going. But I guess if I had to forecast you know, years in the future, uh, once I've left this position behind, I-, I hope it would be said of our time that we did everything we could uh, to make the agency more responsive to the needs of the American people, uh, to deliver on national priorities like rural broadband and 5G and consumer protection, and that uh, in word and in deed, uh, we really tried to represent the, the entire country. And that includes me personally visiting 49 states and the territories of Puerto Rico and the Virgin Islands. As uh, far as I know, the first chairman in history ever to do that. Uh, the pandemic kept me from uh, hitting Alaska so far. But uh, to me, that uh, it was important to me to get out into the field, both to show people that we cared, but also to learn about all of the unique circumstances. And you know, those, whenever I wake up in the morning and log on my computer, those are the stories that linger with me. You know, the rural tribal members at the Wind River observation who you know, told me about how CAF funding was enabled them to get gigabit fiber to the tribal school. Or uh, the folks I met in the, the Gulf in Mississippi uh, you who talked to me about how important wireless infrastructure was and some of the problems they had. Or, you know, the telehealth visit I did in Salt Lake City to the mental, uh, VA mental health uh, telehub that You know, veterans were literally saving years of their lives because they're able to get telehealth. I mean, those are the kinds of things that I wouldn't have known had I not traveled. And so I hope that uh, one part of the legacy will be that uh, we inspired future FCC commissioners and hopefully FCC chairs to get out there and be amongst the people they uh, are, are purporting to serve. And then maybe he wasn't bad on Twitter, too. <laughs> that might be the icing on the cake. Adjit Pai FCC was uh, something worth following for a while.
0: <laughs> that it is. That it is. Check check him out on Twitter, listeners. Well said. <laughs> uh, well, thank you so much again for uh, joining us today. Again, my guest has been uh, Chairman Adjit Pai, who is uh, chairman of the Federal Communications Commission. And thank you for listening to Rural Broadband Today, where we take a look at the people and the issues shaping the rural broadband story across America. I'm your host, Stephen Smith. The program is produced by WordSouth, a content marketing company. Please be sure to share this episode with your network and help us tell the rural broadband story. Thanks for listening. Rural Broadband Today is a production of WordSouth, a content marketing company.